0: Alright, right, so do me a favor and turn to Colossians chapter 3, and uh, if you need a Bible, uh, maybe somebody, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and somebody will run one up to you. Uh, If you don't, uh, you got your Bible, turn over there, uh, chapter 3, uh, verse 18. Now, I'm going to read you something, and some of us in here, and I'm not making fun, I or not making light of it, some of us are going to have the hair raise up on the back of our neck as soon as we read the first sentence. And here's what I want to tell you about this. You you know that a Christian has three enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil, or the enemy of our souls, Satan himself and all his minions, his organized angelic beings. and all three of those enemies are on full-out attack against these scriptures right here. In fact, when I read them, again, somebody might get a little restless. And in fact, somebody this week, and I was joking with him, texted me and said, you know, good luck with this week. And yet, you see, This is not some doctrine to be feared, but a doctrine to be embraced. Because I don't know if you know this, folks, but the enemy of our souls has one of man's, or excuse me, God's institutions right in the crosshairs, in full, I mean, just all of his Armies directed at this institution, and it's the first institution that God ever made. It's the family. If you look at the United States, you you see an unbelievable deterioration of the family. You say, oh my goodness, another pastor going to rail against divorce and all that sort of thing. No, nobody's railing. By the way, timeout, rabbit trail. Jesus was raised in a one-person home. You say, what do you mean? Didn't he have a father? Yeah, but we think he died at an early age. So we're not railing against one person's home. We're just bringing to light what the Scriptures say about what's optimum for the family. And God chooses the family to bring about righteousness, it's one way in which he shouts the gospel to an unbelieving world. And so the enemy of our souls has that institution in the crosshairs, direct attack. If he can ruin the family and get you to hate God's word or to bend on God's word, to adjust God's word, and he can dilute the power that he wants to exhibit through that institution. You with me? What did, God, or what did the enemy of our souls do to Eve in the Garden of Eden? You know what he, she, he did? He, he tried and was somewhat successful in getting Eve to doubt God's word. He said, she, he said this. Listen, come on. He, I'm sure he said it like this. Come on. Did God really say that? Did God really tell you not to eat? of Come on, you deserve it. It's what modern world thinking tells us. It's what our self-life tells us. It's what the enemy of the souls, or our souls, is telling us, and it's all a direct attack on the family. So what we're here to do by the spirit of god through the word of god is to see what the bible plainly tells us about the institution of the family marriage parents and children and then what we do with our work life listen you won't understand this book if you don't understand that Paul here, writing to a small, little, insignificant, in the eyes of the world, church. He's writing a letter to a church that he's never been to. And he writes this letter to this church in Turkey or Asia Minor in the Lycus Valley with a couple other churches. And he's asking a devoted brother to take this letter, a couple of them, and deliver it to this church to combat false teaching. There's been these false teachers, and they're called Gnostics mainly. There was some Jewish legalism mixed in there with Gnosticism and some mystical stuff, and Paul is combating that. And basically what Gnosticism, Gnostic means no knowledge, is that there are these emanations or angels from god to man and in order for you man to get to god you had to come to this realization through these angels of who god was and who god is and It's called knowledge because they bragged in the fact that only a select few intellectuals could make the jump up the ladder from emanation to emanation to reach God. And they believed that matter, body, matter, things that were solid, you could see, touch, were evil. Only the spiritual was good. So that the closer that you got to the world, the more polluted, in a sense, that you became, which. Is interesting because who became a man? Jesus. So they believed Jesus was just one of the emanations of all these emanations to get to heaven. They believed in a whole bunch of angels and that sort of thing. And it became a very exclusive club because only a certain elect people could come to this knowledge that others couldn't gain. Well, Paul's combating that. And he goes through some of the greatest writings, inspirational writings about who Christ is and how he's preeminent. And in chapter two, verse nine, read this. It almost comes to the height of everything, and it says, for in him Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. Bodily, in other words, bang. Right to the Gnostics, God became a man, and all that God is, Jesus is, in a body. See how that would strike at Gnosticism? And then he says something totally, incredibly amazing. We actually sang about it today, if you were paying attention, and I know you were. And you are, look, it's staggering. You are complete in Him. You have the fullness of God available to you. This is better than the Pirates winning the World Series, folks. I mean, this is, this is the greatest thing of all time. You're completing him, who is the head of all principality and powers. And then he goes on and talks about not getting involved in legalism, but lay hold of Christ himself. Do that. That's all the way through the end of chapter 2 and then into chapter Three, last week he told us, look in verse 8, your, your, your cells are to put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language. In other words, the old life that you lived. The Bible says you're a sinner and fall short of the glory of God, and that through one man, Adam, sin came, and that we all are born sinners. I grew up thinking we all were basically good. The Bible teaches that we're all sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. And you have a nature that's called the old nature, the old man, and you're to put that off, verse 9. You have put off the old man with his deeds, but you've put on the new man. And we talked last week about what that means, how to put off and how to put on or what it means, because the new man is renewed in knowledge. How do you renew this new man? How do you feed? What do you feed to the new man or woman? You feed the word of God. You keep knowing and growing who Christ is. That's feeding the new man. According to the image of Him in verse two here, who created Him, verse eleven, chapter two, verse eleven, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. And actually, in Galatians, it actually says there's neither male nor female. Also, he adds that in. That's important for about what what we're about ready to talk about. You understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ says there's no man, or no man is greater than any woman. We're equal in Christ. You see, most people, because of the attack of the enemy, says oh you believe in that bible stuff about men and women doesn't the bible degrade women man oh man they didn't read their bible because if you knew what was happening for women in these times and what christ does in the gospel to make us equal he says we're equal this gospel elevates women it's a lie from the pit of hell it's a lie that the gospel takes women and pushes them down. No, 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 no. The Bible brings them up everywhere the gospel's ever gone. We're equal in Christ. Remember in chapter 3, did I say? I keep keep messing this up. I keep saying chapter 2. I'm sorry, we're in chapter 3. In verse 12, last week, we finished off by saying we're the elect of God, holy and beloved. We're to put on, what, tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. We went with through all of this, bearing with one another. Why would we do this? Because Christ forgave us and gives us a new nature, gives us a new life. But above all these things, make sure you're loving. Tie all these things on with love and let the peace of God rule in your hearts. We talked about that. It's like an umpire. To which you were also called in one body, and be thankful and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is what your everyday life should look like, admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And whatever you do, remember this. Christian, you get this question all the time if you're a pastor Should I go to Yale or should I go to Harvard? Should I go to community college or a 4 year school? Should I take this job or should I take that job? Come on, pastor, tell me. Well, here's the deal, and here's the catch. I'm not so sure, you can argue with me about this if you want, that's okay, that God's so concerned about which road you take. It's about what you do once you get there. Now, of course, he has things that he wants you to do and walk in, and he opens doors for you and closes doors. But here, look at this, whatever you do. I mean, you could even be an attorney and be a Christian. Can you believe this? And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. You could be doing dishes, you could work for waste management, picking up the trash. You, you, You can be a person who drives your kids to and from all their activities, you could be an architect. You could be at this school, or that school, or not go to school, or be at a trade school. Whatever you do, do it in word or deed. All of life is worship to Christ. You see that? Your whole life is a life of worship. Whatever you do, God's placed you there. Whatever you do, do it in the name of Jesus. Does that mean you go in there and you just yell, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus? Well, maybe, but, but that's not the point of saying the name of Jesus. He's saying, do it in the nature and character of Jesus as his great ambassador, as he lives his life in and through you. It's not so much what would Jesus do and imitate it, although the Bible does say that in places. It's let the Lord's life live in and through you wherever you go. With that, it comes to this. It says, listen, because of these great and grand and glorious truths that I've told you, and because you're now required or asked to put off the old man and to put on the new man, he says, it doesn't just stop there. In fact, somebody today in Foundations of the Faith said this to us. You know, this all sounds great in here, but when we go out there and they pointed to the door, it's where it gets difficult. We all said, yep. Yep. You're right. See, because when you go through there, that's where the rubber meets the road. What do you mean? When you go home and you have to live with somebody (laughs) 24-7, right? I don't care how much you love them. When you live together all the time and they do things differently than you, does the gospel transfer? Does the gospel make our homes better? That's one thing. Does the gospel make our parenting-child relationship better? That's another thing. Does the gospel transform you at work? Well, Paul's about ready to tell us about all of this. He says to this little, in the eyes of the world, insignificant church, not insignificant to him, he says, this character, this putting off, putting on, should impact your marriages. And what I read is the first thing that the enemy has always attacked. Here it comes, you ready? Wives. Submit to your own husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Hmm. And then he says, husbands, love your wives, and do not be bitter towards them. I want you to see that Paul, in this little letter, you know, and and I'm not knocking him. I've listened to the tapes. I've gone to the seminars, not physically to the place, but I've listened to the seminar tapes. Do you know how many volumes of materials there are written about marriage? It's it's voluminous. There's seminars. There's whole ministries that center around it. Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, goes, here's what I want you to do, two verses. I'll give the wife one command, the man two commands in this book. You have to read it in conjunction with Ephesians 5 and some places, in 1 Peter and other places. We'll talk about that in a minute. And he says, I want to raise up godly children and godly families in the context of a home that takes the gospel out to the world. And here's how we're going to do it. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. That's the first thing. So let's talk about wives and let's take what the enemy is trying to say to you and to us That this is an outdated, outmoded, uh, yeah, outdated, uh, just old-fashioned idea that elevates men above women. The first thing I would want to say to you is, that's not true. The Bible says in gospel life, men and women are equal. I just read it to you. But within the home, if there is two people that God has chosen to be married, there comes an order. Or a hierarchy. That's different than equality. And it says here that wives are submit to your own husbands. It doesn't say to men. It says to your own husband, one person, submit. And then the word that they use here in the Greek for submit, I want you to know this, ladies. You're like, oh boy. It's a word that means voluntarily. You're doing it voluntarily. And that's the key to this whole passage. In when inside of marriage, wives are submit to their own husbands, not to men in general, but to their own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. What does it mean to submit to your own husbands? Well, here's how I wrote it down in my own little bit definition. I could be really funny right here, but I'm not doing that. It's allowing your husband to be the spiritual uh, leader of the home and family life. It's supporting him and being all that he can be as the spiritual leader of your home. It's to come alongside and to help and to encourage, not discourage. Why do I think that? How do I get that from that passage? Well, I have to look at another passage in the Bible. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter five. see, in Ephesians chapter 5, I want you to know something. Don't be alarmed that it says wives submit to your husbands, because why aren't you alarmed when it says that we're to submit to one another as husband, of life, husband and wife, verse 21 of chapter 5 of Ephesians, in the fear of God. So there's a way in which I submit to my wife, and there's a way in which she she submits to me, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Keep going in Ephesians 5, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in most things." it doesn't say that it says in everything and then it turns around and talks about the husbands love your wife just as christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be holy and without blemish so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife. What's the purpose of marriage? And the two will become one flesh. There you go. There's the purpose of marriage, to become one. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, the first thing I want to point out to, you, point out to you is in verse 23. We're asking the question, how, why, what, what does it look like? What is submission? And the first thing we're saying is, why would we do it voluntarily, wives? When I say we... I actually mean you. <laughs> I'm not gonna be a wife, but you get it from the scriptures. Why would a wife, why would a wife submit to their own husbands? Why? You ever ask that question? Well, here's what the Lord says. It's because the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. There's this thing called headship. Now let's unpack this so that we can grow our families, in the right way, and not be disturbed by what the enemy tells us about this. What's headship? Well, it's leadership. It's hierarchy. It's order. You know, yesterday was a great day. When this day comes, man, it's like everything turns for the year. You know what it is? Preseason football. Wasn't it great to hear the, the fans and the whistles? And I gotta tell you folks, you're gonna get mad at me, but I'm switching my allegiance. I love the quarterback for the Bears. And he played so great yesterday, and it was so awesome. So I love football. Did you know that? But you listen, you say, well, yeah, the quarterback for the Bears, what an amazing guy. Yeah, yeah, but listen, if the quarterback for the Bears doesn't have a center, The other team just runs right up the middle and sacks him. If the quarterback for the Bears doesn't have a running back, they could never run the ball. If the quarterback for the Bears drops backs and throws the ball, and there's no wide receiver out there to catch the ball, he'll be nothing. He's just the quarterback. But it takes all 11 who are very important, 11 at a time, 22, if you're counting. 11-11. But anyway, 11 at a time. It takes all 11 to run the play or defend the play. It doesn't just take the quarterback. Dan Marino couldn't pass for all those yards if people weren't blocking for him or catching. Are you getting it? And yet he was the quarterback. First day of training camp, I guarantee you, I don't care what level of football. First day of training camp, they do the same exact thing. Let me just give you a little hint. Here's the first thing they do. Here's how we're going to huddle. The coach tells them how we're going to huddle. And then the coach says one thing, and they say it in every football practice at the beginning of the year. Every team, I don't care who you are, Patriots, down to Biddy League, they say the same thing. They say this, one guy talks in the huddle. What? Yeah, one guy talks in the huddle. Every coach says it. Every team does it. There's one guy that talks. It's the quarterback. Why? Because he's getting the signal from the coach To call the play, and if people don't know the play, there's going to be chaos. Get it? Wait a minute. Is the quarterback going to be successful without the tight end? No. Is the quarterback going to be successful without the center? No. Without the wide receiver? No way. It's a hierarchy. Are you getting where I'm going with that? God gave the quarterback for the Bears a role, but he also gave, well, (laughs) I guess God did, but anyway, the coach gave the quarterback for the Bears a role. He gave the center a role. He gave the wide receiver a role, but when they all come together, it makes beautiful music, especially if you're Tampa Bay. You guys hate that, don't you? But anyway, that's what he's talking about here in the book of Ephesians and also in the book of uh, Colossians. He's saying that we're both equal within the marriage. In fact, I'm to submit to my wife in a way. We'll talk about how that is. But she submit to me. What in? In headship. In headship. Do Do you understand that headship is not something that makes one equal or unequal or one better than the other. No, there's equality between men and women. Anybody here ever been in the military? Raise your hand you've been in the military. No military people. Well, here's what you do know. Just because somebody's the captain doesn't make them smarter or greater than the private. They just happen to have different roles. It would be utter chaos if we were in war and the private saying one thing and the captain saying another no they've established this order that's all it is there's this order in headship and in fact in ephesians 5 in ephesians 5 it told you didn't it it told you that there's this thing if you want to look at the nature and character of headship Now stick with me, you're going to have to put on your thinking caps here, but I've never heard it explained better than this by a pastor called Ray Steadman. He says if you want to look at the nature and characteristic of headship between a husband and a wife, then look at the nature and character of this headship between Christ and God, the Son and the Father. In fact, you could go over to 1 Corinthians 11:3. You don't you don't have to do that, but what it says in 1 Corinthians 11:3 is almost a repeat of what happened in Ephesians. It says this, that Christ is the head of the man. Then it says, the husband is the head of the woman. Then it says, God is the head of Christ. In other words, do you know this, we've just been studying it in Colossians. God and the Son are equal in nature and essence, and yet, listen to this, the son submits to the father out of voluntary love. You see, when you attack this doctrine about wives submitting to their husbands, listen to this, you're saying to the gospel and to what Jesus did, hmm, goofy, weird, I don't like it, which is a lie straight from hell. What do I mean? Look at this. When you examine the relationship between Christ and God, catch this. Jesus said this. Do you remember this? I and the Father are, say it with me, one. I just read to you, what's the goal of man and wife? To become, are you kidding me? In the wrapped up in the headship issue between a husband and a wife, there's this identity of person and nature. We're not just two people living as roommates. We're becoming one in all ways. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Uh, the Bible tells us that the goal of our marriages is, is to become one. Check this out. Number two, when you examine the relationship between God and Christ, catch this. There's a spirit or a there's this thing called mutual cooperation in the work that we do. What do you mean? What do you do? Well, Jesus said this, my Father works and I work. My Father works and I work. I only do those things which the Father shows me to do. Do you remember this And Jesus saying this? There's a cooperation in the work, the goal, the the uh, 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 you know the idea of what our marriage is going to be about. We're going to row in the same direction. Do you catch that? When when God and when you examine the nature of the headship of God with Christ, you see that there's identity of person. Second thing you see is that there's this cooperation in work. You ever you've had it happen in your marriages sometimes, or right? One wants to go off that way, and one wants to go off that way. You know, you don't have to have the same likes and everything, but is the trajectory of what your life is about, have you discussed it? Is it moving towards the same goal, which is to glorify Christ? Or is one going this way and one going that way? See, there's mutual cooperation and work, and that's part of headship and submission. Are you getting it? And so, there's this thing that happens in a marriage, you talk about it, what what are we about? What do we wanna do? See, here's what I wanted to do at the beginning of our marriage, be famous. You think I'm joking. (laughs) I wanted to be famous. I'd give anything up to be famous. I'd move from Ohio to Hawaii with nothing and make my wife, I didn't make her, she did this voluntarily, but, and have my wife work three jobs and me basically work no jobs weird, huh? And the Lord took us to Hawaii, and there, first week, he sets me into a church that preaches the word, and I started to learn about these things. And what gradually came apparent to us is that we wanted to be, the theme of our life is to get the word of God into people so that they could be right dividers of the word themselves. That was the whole theme of our life. That's what we wanted to do. So whether or not she liked to go on walks and I did, yeah, you know, we have differences of opinion and all that, but that was the trajectory of our life. And so we made that the thing of our life and we were rowing in the same way. What was happening was, and it doesn't always work out this way, trust us, right? There was mutual cooperation and work. I no longer needed to be famous in my life. I just wanted to get the word of God out and wherever the Lord took us, and she was amazing in that way to follow and to support and to help, and she is. What's the third thing that you look at in headship? Third thing, when you get weirded out by this word submission, remember headship, and then remember these things, It's just an identity of the person. I and the Father are one. Our marriage's goal is to become one. There's this thing where Jesus, although he was equal, submitted to the Father in honor. I always honor my Father, but you know what happens? The Bible tells us it's the Father who who honors me, Jesus said. There was this reciprocation of honor. That's the third thing, is that there's this honor that goes back and forth. When you think of submission, it's a mutual honor. It's not the husband standing over the wife and saying, give me lunch. That's what everybody on TV wants you to think. That's what everybody in the media wants you to think. That's not this. So it's a mutual of honoring of one another. That's also headship. And then the final thing is though despite all of this jesus says my father is greater than i is jesus god yes and yet he willingly submitted to the will of the father whatever the father wanted he wanted to be involved in that and working towards that i do always those things that please him if you've seen these three things in the headship of god in relation to Christ, you've seen what it means for a husband to support, or excuse me, for a wife to support and prop up her husband in the area of spiritual leadership. You say, well, come on, man, aren't I smart? Yes, you're equal. You're just on the football team. And there's one person that God has called to be the leader. Now listen, flip side of this. Guys, will you please lead? I mean, come on. (laughs) The Lord's calling you to be the leader. And what is He calling you to be the leader in? He's calling you to be the chief servant, to love her back and to honor her. All these things that we read. You see, it's not hard to submit to somebody who's loving you in the way that the Bible calls you to love. You think of. Listen, even Jesus, in the hardest times in the Garden of Gethsemane, you see it there. You see the headship. You see him there, Lord, if there's any other way, which is often a conversation a husband and wife have. Isn't there another way we could do this? And you talk about it and you pray about it. And then Jesus said, but not my will, thine be done. Okay, Lord, if that's what you have, I'll walk in that. So you say, my goodness, But you don't know the guy I'm with. (laughs) You're up here spouting all this stuff, and you're reading from the Bible, but you you don't know the guy I'm with. It's impossible. You see, God's calling us wives to submission whether or not your husband is doing the right thing. You say, really? Okay, come on. Seriously? Yeah, let me take you to a verse. Hold on. Let me take you to a verse before the shock Let me take you to 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, listen, time out. The Bible tells us in Acts, just sort of what we've been dealing with this whole COVID mess, that we're not to obey men when they violate God's orders. So, no one is saying to a wife here or anywhere, if the Husband asks you to do something against God's will that you should follow him and submit to that. No way. Nobody's, nobody's saying that. And also, time out. If you're in a place where there's something physically or threatening to you or violent to you or emotionally violent to you, you should get away and be safe. So nobody's talking about that. We all clear with that? But what we're talking about is the normal everyday life. Of living what happens if your husband isn't saved or isn't acting saved and doesn't do everything you want let me read to you from first peter 3 wives likewise be submissive to your own husband that even if some do not obey the word they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear respect Reverence. Don't let your adornment be merely outward or arranging the hair, hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Anything wrong with all that stuff? No, but he's saying don't trust in that. Rather, wives, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Does that mean I have to be a doormat? No, that's not what that means. You know, the Bible says that we're called to be meek. Strength under control. That's this. There's this gentle strength. There's this quiet, spiritual strength that recognizes that God's doing something bigger than the fact that he won't do the dishes. Although, guys, do the dishes and lead. But ladies, if he's not doing that, there's this thing, though, this way in which you can live your life because it's very precious in the sight of God that you live that way. For in this manner, the holy women who, uh, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Adam, calling him Lord, you, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. You say, oh, well, okay. Well, I'm obeying because of headship. I took you through something that Ray Stedman talks about, those four areas of headship that shows you the nature of submission and headship. I've also taken you to this place. What happens if my husband's not doing what I want him to do in the Lord? Well, 1 Peter 3 tells us. But let me tell you another reason why you would submit to your husbands. Take yourself to Titus chapter 2. This is very interesting, ladies. Titus chapter 2. Isn't it funny that the ladies' study just went through this for three straight weeks, and now we're doing this? Well, anyway, whatever that means. But here, in chapter 2 of Titus, verses 4, no one... Oh, (laughs) I better get out of Timothy and go to Titus. Chapter 2, verse 4 of Titus. Can you believe that it says this? talking about women, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, why? That the word of God may not be blasphemed. Do you understand what that's saying? This saying, you have an impact on others as it pertains to God's word when you choose to submit to the leadership of your husband. Are you equal? Yes, you just have a different role. Here's another reason you'd submit. It's actually contained right in the verse in Colossians. It says this, don't forget this. Wives, submit to your own husbands, why? Because it's fitting in the Lord. What are we talking about in this section? Remember, context, context, context. We're taking, talking about putting off the old man, like old dirty clothes, and putting on the new man of Christ or the new person of Christ. And one of the things, as is fitting, is submission. And that word actually means that which is due or owed. In other words, your life has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You now have uh, eternal life, and you're living the sanctified life of putting off, putting on. And one of the marks that you return back to the Lord, you worship the Lord with, is in your submission to the leadership of your husband. Now, okay, you're like, okay, that's enough. You've beaten a dead horse here. Well, let's talk about the men. First of all, I would say it again. Come on, men. Let's lead in this area. Husbands, love your wives. He Purposely uses the word apagao here, agape love. Did I just say apagao? Agapao. I got the G and the P mixed up. Late night. But anyway, agapaho. He uses the word agapaho here. He does it differently. He's not talking about the eros love, although that's part of uh, 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 marriage. He's not talking about the friendship love, although that is talking about marriage too. He's talking about that supernatural committed love. In other words, husbands, love your wives. What should you be doing for your wives? Well, you should be giving of yourself or sacrificing. You know, this is really interesting. Almost every person in here who's a man who's married would say, well, I would do that. If we were out at, uh, I don't know, somewhere in Pittsburgh and somebody came up with a gun and it was me or her, I I bet you almost, hopefully 100, but I'd say almost 100% of the men in here would say, I would step in front of the bullet. Yeah, we'd die for our wives, sure. And yes, that is noble and wonderful. But here's the thing. Are you willing to die to yourself? Now, that's a different issue. Are you willing to die for yourself? Are you willing to sacrifice? You could look at that in 525 of Ephesians 5. We're to love our wives like Christ loved the church. Are we willing to sacrifice it all for our wives? Here's another thing it tells us here, or it tells us, excuse me, in uh, chapter 5 of Ephesians, and that's this, that we are to wash our wives in the water of the word. Guys, here's where the leadership comes in. What are you supposed to do? Okay, honey, at 545 when I get home, we're going to go through Colossians, and I'm going to take you through all the different aspects of headship. Well, I guess you could do it that way, but man, would that be a drag? How about instead of that, being a sacrificial lover of your wife, and then, listen, you creating the culture in your home where the Bible is read and studied and delighted in, so that she reads and studies and delights in it, so that it filters down, if the Lord gives you these, children to the kids, and that you make sure that your wife is getting washed in the water of the Word. She's worshiping, and praying, and loving at your leadership. What if you created that culture? You say, well, yeah, I'll create that culture. I'll just read the Bible myself. How about this? When you have little kids, why don't you get up and get the kids ready? Why don't you take them to the park so she could have time with the Lord? Why don't you create that culture? Why don't you, when you're know you teetering on the edge, should we make it to church or should we not make it to church? Why don't you say, "Honey, let's go to church and then let's go take a walk after or something. We'll enjoy. Let's get her to there where she can worship with other ladies and people." Why don't we take the initiative in leading that, not bossing people around, but creating a culture in your home so that God is served and loved? Wouldn't that be a return stand up against the deterioration of the church, wouldn't it be? Guys, we need to lead, but yet oftentimes we don't. We don't. The number one reason I think you and I and we as men don't lead is because of our self-importance. What do you mean? Well, we think we're important. We go to work. We make the money. We do the... Not that all of us make the money. Ladies can make money too. But we do make money. And then we say, oh, we're too busy to meet with the Lord. I'll get in the car. Listen, I think the number one thing for you to be the leader of your home is to have a devotional life. I think if you're not having a devotional life as a husband, as a dad, you're not leading. I just got to be honest. Why? Because that's where you delight in the Lord and the Lord delights in you and then it filters out to your wife and kids. Amen. Husbands, love your wives. So sacrifice and this sanctification and then isn't this funny love your own body yeah we love our own body remember in ephesians 5 we read love your wife like you love your own body that's so funny man are we the biggest wimps when it comes to you know sickness and all that oh my gosh you know my eyelash hurts can you get me two gel caps please and you lay in bed for three days or whatever but we love our bodies man and the Lord says, love your wife like that, care for it. Be concerned about her. You know, there's something really hard in the Bible. You say, well, some of the husbands here or is listening or whatever might say, well, you know, my wife's not doing what I ask her to. She doesn't look like I think she should look in the Lord. Really? You ever read 1 Corinthians eleven seven? 7? The woman is the glory of man. If you're upset with the way you're, your wife is looking and acting. I don't mean looking physically, but in the Lord, it's a direct reflection of your leadership. Bingo. That's what it says there in uh, uh, the Corinthians passage, 1 Corinthians eleven seven. 7. The woman is the glory of man. And then, you know, there's this thing, too, that the, the wife needs, and so do you, by the way. A wife needs to know that you're committed and can trust you with her heart well, the whole goal of marriage in Ephesians 5 is that two become one. You could never do that unless you trusted. There's one other thing. I'm great at this with football stats or golf stats or basketball stats or baseball stats. Not as good with understanding my wife, but in 1 Peter 3, the Bible says that we're to live in understanding with our wives in fact it goes so far to say if you don't live in understanding with your wives your prayers won't be heard so what does that mean this is the part of the mutual submission i gotta tell you i just don't like to discuss my feelings i don't really care to hear about other people's feelings just being totally honest with you that's just not my makeup but sometimes she comes home with a problem And I'm just like, could you just tell me the problem so we could fix it? And all she wants to do is just vent. She doesn't want me to fix anything. That's part of understanding, isn't it? Part of understanding, understanding your wife. See, I'll learn all Sidney Crosby's statistics, and I'll become an expert in Sidney Crosby's life. And yet, many of us won't take any time to understand our wives. What makes her tick? What does she like? It took me two weeks to figure out, in Corolla, she didn't want a regular breakfast. She wanted to go get acai bowls every morning. (laughs) And that made her really happy. I figured it out about the 10th day. (laughs) Right? We're to be experts in our wives, without which there'll be no... that could hinder your prayers. So, husbands, love your wives, and... Don't be bitter towards them. That's the last thing. Don't be cutting. That actually says cutting or injurious to them. Don't do that. Don't be that. Love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. But then also, all of this talk in Colossians should impact the children and the parents. Listen, folks, if you're under the or you're 18 or older and you're still living in the house, it says here that you're to obey your parents in all things. You're to obey your parents. They might say, you might say, well, I'm 18, and I can stay out on a Saturday night till 12 o'clock. And you say, well, I'm the parent, and I don't want you past 1115. What happens? You obey the parent. Parents, be parents. Parents don't, or kids don't need friends, they need parents. But obey them in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And actually, in the Ephesian passage, listen, kids, you're to honor your parents, to bestow honor upon them, to give them honor because they're your parents. Again, there's always the safety net. If they're hurting you or doing something or asking you to do something that's not appropriate, well, you don't have to obey that. But in the normal course of life and things, you're to obey your parents, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Do you know that one of the signs of the end times is that there's going to be a total breakdown of the family and kids won't honor their or obey their parents anymore? It's because the marriages have broken down and then the parent-child relationships have broken down. Folks, we see many uh, times... More more and more and more that there's often the kid in the household or the kids who run the whole show here it says children obey your parents this is well pleasing to the Lord when you move out you make your own decisions Of course, you get married and you move off, but you're still required to honor your parents. You don't have to listen to everything they say or take action on everything they say, but you're still required to honor them. And then it says this Fathers, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Do you know what the word discouraged means? Just think about it. Taking the courage out of a kid. Isn't that awful? see we could do it one of two ways again kids want to be led so bible's calling us to headship spiritual leadership we call the plays we create the culture we don't boss people around we love sacrificially we give our lives up for our wives and our kids but we don't provoke our children we could go one or two ways here we got some people who are distant and critical and everything that the kid does is wrong and you won't get close to them fathers if you're doing that get on your knees and repent and go tell your kids you love them and take them out just for ice cream for no reason or get them i don't know something but make sure that they know it's not because of something they do that you love them it's just because they are that you love them and so Leadership is creating this culture where there is this obedience in the home, but you're not harsh and overbearing. Every little thing that they do, you're always criticizing. They didn't sing the worship song the way you wanted them. They didn't close their eyes during prayer. You didn't go to the youth group every time. Don't provoke your children. They'll become discouraged. You'll empty the courage out of them. But there's a problem in today's society. We're not mostly that way. We're mostly the other way, where we're so lenient, we want to be their best buddies. You can take all the courage out of them. Because what happens is they become the center of the universe, and it's like they're running the family. And I got news for you. They don't want to run the family. Even if they are, they don't want to. It's too much pressure. And you become so lenient with them that they just do whatever they want, and they're just like looking around and confused. Like, where are my parents, man? Where's the leadership? And they can become discouraged. You could empty them of courage. Turn over to chapter 2 of Colossians. Paul writes to the churches in the Lycus Valley and says, in the middle of verse one, as, for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, verse two, that their hearts may be encouraged. Oh, that's the opposite of discouraged, even I'm smart enough to know that. How do you put courage into a person or to your kids? Well, you knit together all of them in love. There's gotta be this love, they gotta know that you care. There was this ministry guy and gal that came up to us about two months ago and just said, what do we do? I mean, how do we connect with our kids? But here's what I said. I think it took them aback a little bit. They're in ministry. I said, find something that your kid loves to do and go do it with them and keep doing it with them. Connect with them in the thing that they love so that they know that they're not always on your terms. You're on their terms sometimes. Sometimes we're asking them to do and to not do. That's one way you can love your kids, take interest in what they love. Be knit together in love. But see, love always also means that sometimes you have to correct them. Listen, man, I told you, you got to get your homework in. And if you don't get your homework in, you're not going to play baseball. Well, a lot of parents say that, but not a lot of parents do anything about it. Oh, you didn't get your homework in? Okay, you get four more chances. If you don't get it on the fourth time, no baseball. Fourth time comes and goes. We'll give you six. How about seven? Because people are learning to. You see, parents are living their lives out through their kids. They want them to be great baseball players or whatever. No, you got to got to guide them there's got to be rules there's got that's love love is not letting them do what they want but growing them up in the fear and admonition of the lord being responsible people and attaining to all riches you ready for this the full assurance of understanding you and your wife if you're called to be married look at this you want to put courage into somebody why, you be fully assured and understand the knowledge of the mystery of God, which is what? Christ in us, the hope of glory, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. When you're depending upon the Lord and they're watching and they're seeing, and then that's being lived out in the home in love, not in uh, you know dictatorship or anything, but it's in love and there's there's truth and consequences, but you're all moving in the right direction as a family, listen, what happens, what pours into them? Courage. Don't discourage them. Don't be so bitter and harsh that they never want to be around. Don't be so lenient. Be that place right in the middle where there's leading and love and direction. How about this? Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. We don't have this so much anymore, this servant-master relationship, because this was written during the Roman occupation, where some people say there were over 60 million slaves. So a family, Roman family, would have everybody as a slave, including people like doctors and lawyers. Do you know this? to do all their work for them and even to teach their kids. But here he's saying, what happens if you find yourself in that position, bond servant or slave? What do you do? Or excuse me, bond servant or master? What do you do? You obey in all things your master according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers. This would translate to us to be our employer-employee relationship now. Did you catch what it's saying right there? Don't be a man pleaser. When the boss is around, I work hard. When the boss is gone, I goof around. Do work all the time. That'll be a great witness to the world and to the people you're working with. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, because our focus in our work is that we're worshiping the Lord, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the ward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. The things we do on earth count. Even Christians will be judged, not for our salvation, but for what we did with what we had, our stewardship. Now listen, masters, this shouldn't be in verse chapter 4, it should be at the end of verse 3. Did you know that the chapter breaks aren't inspired? Well, here's a great place where you see that. Because this should be at the end of chapter 3. Masters, give your bondservant what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now that's interesting. If you're a person who is an employer, be fair and just with your workers. Don't be be Scrooge. And all you have to do is turn to that amazing parable of the master who hired some workers to work in his, you know, fields. And you remember that parable he hired some at this time of the day and they got a full day's wage and then he hired some at noon and they got a full day's wage and then he hired some right at the end of quitting time and they got a full day's wage do you remember that parable the people who got hired early in the morning were like up in arms what do you mean and the point isn't the emphasis on the workers. The point is the emphasis on the master. And though here's what it says to you. You, you, you want to know this, man. The master is unbelievably generous. And when you stand before the Lord, I'm convinced you're going to come in by the blood of the lamb. You're going to be judged in the things. Listen, the Lord, I want you to know this, the Lord is generous. That's what he's saying here. Be generous like the Lord is generous. And he says, wow, Tim, you've gone a long time. I know that. You say, wow, some of these things are hard. I know that too, because the enemy of our souls is pounding you with a different message. So Paul gives you the best advice. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us, Paul's asking, remember where Paul is when he writes this letter? He's in a prison in Rome, Italy. He says, praying also for us, oh, praying that we would get out of jail. No, that's what we would pray. He says, pray for us that God would open to us a door for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in change, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. I can't wait till September 26 when we start our class on prayer at nine o'clock. When you examine the prayers of Paul, they're a lot different than the prayers I pray. I for sure would have said, Lord, get me out of here. It's dark and dank and I miss my family and I want out. Paul says he didn't even broach the subject with the Lord about getting out. He doesn't even bring it up. He says, man, give me opportunities in this place to share your word more and more. And since I got this letter out, please pray for me. Isn't that beautiful? I can't think of a better way or a better example of chapter 3, verse 1, where we're to seek those things which are above and to set our minds on things above. Paul's mindset, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was, listen, listen, not my will, but yours be done. And that's submission. Let's pray. Lord, there's many ways and many relationships that you call us to submit in. And I pray that today we've learned more and more about the beauty of submission, and we, Lord, help us not to be enticed by what the world thinks about the biblical doctrine of submission. Lord, help us not to be enticed by the lies of the enemies that tells us that it puts down women and elevates men. No, in fact, Men are called to love their women or love their wives sacrificially and love their children sacrificially and love their friends sacrificially. Lord, help us to learn more and more what it is about the gospel where we have rights, but sometimes we're asked to put down those rights for the greater good. What a mindset, Lord. Help us in all these things by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.